This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 44, The Fall of Night. Season 2 finale spectacular! And yes, as Chip said, thank you all for being with us through two entire seasons of Babylon 5 now. We appreciate you joining us on our sojourn through this five-year story. We also appreciate having our control group, my spouse, Stephen Chapansky, with us today for the Series 2 wrap-up episode. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. I'm very, I have been looking forward to this since the last time I was on. I like that uh, I'm on the, well, so far anyway, on the, um, the season finale episodes because it feels important. And uh, I like being invited to important things. Well, don't mess it up this time and maybe you'll come back again. Well, I like, I like that I'm on, on these important ones. Jason Snell is on the ones where uh, tragic death occurs. Uh, <laughs> and yes. haven't, haven't established a pattern yet for Andy Anako or, or the Thomases, so... We'll see. I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Stephen, as you said, you have been very excited to talk with us about Series 2. Before we go too deep into it, can you give us your sort of brief overall impression of Babylon 5 thus far? Uh, Season 2 was much better than Season 1. I'm sure I'm making some groundbreaking statements right there by saying that. Ooh, controversy. (laughs) I know. Um, Although, I I do... um, I do kind of miss the the cheering for the underdog charm of of Michael Sinclair. Uh, I miss <laughs> I miss the uh, the check ins uh, from from episode to episode. We don't have those anymore, I'm afraid. So I kind of miss that aspect of things. Mm-hmm. Now we've um, got a fair bit of faith in Bruce Boxleitner. Yeah, I suppose you do. Uh, I, honestly, I thought that. I, I suppose Boxleitner had a, a larger part in here, but I, it took him a few episodes, I thought, to sort of become the focal point of of the story, I thought. I thought he was kind of left off in the sidelines for a little bit, and I was expecting more of a, a you know, a, a strong sort of start to saying, here's this new captain, he's sort of in charge of everything, but we didn't really find out a lot about him, about him until, you know, midway through the season. So that was intriguing. Um, and I, as you said, last episode... I think my uh, well, my favorite episode to watch has been the previous one. Um, comes the Inquisitor because mm-hmm. it was easily the most well directed, and that's of course Mike Fahar, who is who is uh, my new favorite uh, element of Babylon Five. And <laughs> I didn't actually see him much in this episode, so I'll talk about him now because I think on the end of the first season, I I said how I kind of thought that uh, Jakar and Londo were sort of the comedy aliens in that first season. And, and I remember you saying yeah, that. <laughs> I know, right? And I think that's certainly changed. And I think um, uh, the guy, what's his, uh, Andreas Katsalis, went from sort of like, you know, sort of panto villain to the best thing of season two. His performance, especially in the last episode, was electric. Uh, and so now I, I, I quite like watching him. Um, uh, perform under the makeup when I, I I didn't think that a year ago, and I thought that it was going to be a bit of a, a not a tough slog through his scenes and stuff. But but I think the uh, the Londo and 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 the Jakar and the uh, the Centauri scenes were probably some of the best of the season. Oh, that's so exciting to hear you say. Yeah, very cool. Chip and Shannon, do you have anything general to add before we sort of dive into our season finale? You know, I I think it's totally fair to say that the second season is stronger than the first season, not only because we have a more 
capable is not the right word, but sort of comfortable actor, healthy actor in in the leadership role with um, Sinclair changing to Sheridan. The other actors have found their not only found their niche as far as what their characters are like, they're being everybody's being given more stuff to do. And, you know, they're they're showing that they're capable of doing it. So things definitely have gotten a lot more interesting, um, you know, and not only in the character as an acting side, but in the plot side where we have, you know, somewhat all these little bits and episodic pieces that made it feel sort of Star Trek-ish um, with, you know, little disconnected things. Um, they're being woven together and you can see a lot of the bigger picture. And, I, and for me personally, um, that's something I enjoy. Yeah, the most important thing about season two for me is the fact that Babylon 5 really becomes an arc series with this season. If you were online, if you were part of the fandom, the hardcore fandom back in the day when season one was out, you knew that JMS had a plan because JMS would tell you on CompuServe and Genie that he had a plan. And you could see the the signs and portents uh, throughout season one if you were looking really hard for them. But here it's front and center that Babylon 5 is a different kind of show. And that there is this shadow war a-coming that is uh, undergirding uh, so much of the series. It all falls into motion. And I keep coming back to the coming of shadows, which deservedly won a Hugo at mid-season for putting all of those pieces together um this is possibly even though there i don't think it season two is as consistently good as a future season may be he said not trying to spoil things for (laughs) steven or anything like that but this is possibly my favorite season nice nice well i i think it's kind of neat to be doing to be wrapping it up right now and doing this episode right now because as we record it is actually new year's day of 2016 and you know babylon 5 is about to enter a new year as well so i feel like the timing on this is is pretty cool um i'm I'm spending today sort of looking forward to the future but for the next hour or so we're going to be looking back at the uh at the past of this last uh last season of, of babylon 5 so let's jump in with what you need to know if you are for some reason decided to start babylon 5 with the last episode of season two interesting place but this is what you would need to know Babylon 5's mission to be a United Nations in space that keeps the peace hasn't been going so well this year. The Centauri recently resubjugated the Narn by wiping out their fleet and bombing the Narn homeworld back into the Stone Age. The other races who live on B5 are starting to get nervous. Earth's policies, meanwhile, have turned somewhat inward, politicians calling for Earth to take care of Earth first, and creating new organizations like the Night Watch, which security second-in-command Zach Allen has joined. Also, Lieutenant Warren Keffer is a pilot who saw something in hyperspace and has been obsessed with it ever since. We know what he saw was a shadow vessel, but Captain Sheridan forbid him to go looking, because for now, it's safer that the public not know there's an ancient and powerful enemy marshalling its forces for a coming conflict. And that brings us to the season finale, The Fall of Night. Given the recent troubles, Captain Sheridan has Babylon 5's defense forces practicing maneuvers designed to repel Centauri fighters. And that seems to be a wise decision, as we discover the Centauri have also moved against Drazi and Pakmara worlds. Enter Frederick Lance from the newly formed Ministry of Peace. Sadly, he is on Babylon 5 to sign a peace treaty with the Centauri and is quite upset when he learns Captain Sheridan offered sanctuary to the last Narn heavy cruiser. 
When the Centauri learn of this, they send a ship to Babylon 5, which attacks the station. In an act of self-defense, B-5 destroys the Centauri vessel. Captain Sheridan is ordered to apologize to appease the Centauri, but on his way to do so, an assassination attempt forces Vorlon Ambassador Kosh to reveal himself in order to save Sheridan's life. Meanwhile, Mr. Wells from the Night Watch has also arrived to check up on folks like Zach Allen. Zach has not been doing his part reporting on his fellow Earthers and seems to be uncomfortable with what he's being asked of. Ivanova tells Mr. Wells where to get off when he tries to recruit her to his cause. Last, and possibly least, Kaffir finds... <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Kaffir finds someone else who saw a shadow vessel in hyperspace. He learns they leave a particular neutrino emission signature, so when he has a chance, he tracks one down in hyperspace. It, of course, blasts him to a painful-looking death, but he manages to eject video evidence of the encounter before he's too crispy. Of course, Earth News gets a hold of the footage, and the cat, or the space crab, is out of the bag. Wow. Uh, <laughs> lots happened here. Lots I of- am so, so offended that you would be so callous and cruel <laughs> about the death of what I believe is easily and clearly the proto Poe Dameron. I was going to say Poe Dameron. That's hilarious. <laughs> no. Oh, how dare you sully the name of Poe Dameron by making that comparison. <laughs> but no, you're right. I think he wishes he was. Um, yeah. I mean, this... Well, I guess we can start there. I mean, th- this episode had lots of, of heavy and dark stuff that happened. But but I think you're right. Let's start with the light side. Uh, Kaffir finally bit the dust. <laughs> I mean, it was it was after some rather heavy-handed foreshadowing. You know, you're dead, Zeta Leader, as one of the first lines of the, uh, yes. of the episode. Um, but, you know, at the end of the spoiler section of our last episode, Chip did promise that we would dance on Kaffir's grave. So who wants to go first? <laughs> oh, like you said, it... Uh, Definitely this episode. And, you know, I guess in part it had to throw up the red flag because even though he's been in the credits all season long, we have had not very much of Lieutenant Keffer other than he's it is, you know, he is the tool that reveals the shadows to um, the Earth population or the wider population with um, sending his video footage out before he dies. Um, You could have just stopped with the tool, but go ahead. (laughs) But this particular episode... JMS did pilot on kind of thick, you know, like you said, you know, Keffer, quote unquote, dies in the training session when he meets up with the other guy who had uh, visual evidence of the shadow ship. You know, he basically keeps telling him, you know, you, you go chasing that, you're going to die. You go chasing that, you're going to die. Well, he goes chasing that and, you know, he dies. And, <laughs> you know, bl- bless his heart, the the, the poor actor, <laughs> you know, the, the poor character. It's just, uh I'm trying to remember. Haven't we d- discussed that um, J- the, the idea of Keffer was somewhat forced on JMS? Yes, yes. It we was may a- have only discussed that in the spoiler section. So let's let's let okay. everybody else in on that. Yeah, right. yeah. That was a that was a studio uh, request that, in addition to the changes that uh, JMS was making with his lead actor, uh, the studio thought that they needed a younger, hotshot Tom Cruise type character to appeal to the youngins, and. JMS does not take kindly to um, studio interference. Uh, so when he saw an opportunity to kill him off, I, I, 
he, he did. And I think that uh, you're dead, Zeta leader, and um, you, you go looking for that thing, you're looking for death. That's not only foreshadowing. That is the author dancing on the character's grave. Well, I think he, you know, when he was told he had to create this character, it feels like he created him instantly with this role of you're only going to be here a season and I'm not going to use you any more than I have to. But, you know, as long as I'm stuck with you, darn it, you're going to do this service for me. <laughs> Stephen, I know you sort of rolled your eyes at every time he came up in the credits and were a little baffled by his appearance in the first <laughs> the first episode of this season. Anyway, what what are your thoughts on Kafir? Do you think we're being too hard on him? I think you are a little bit. I, I have to admit, I, I did roll my eyes and I thought, what is? why is he even here? Like, I, I don't even think we see him until third episode in, maybe? And it's like a stupid scene where he's like watching some holographic version of his girlfriend or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is this is awful. But once I found out, uh, as you just explained, the origin of, of the character, I kind of felt bad for the actor. Because I think, you know, he was sort of like, hey, cool, I get a, I got a regular part on this sci-fi series. And, I, you know, it's, a, it's regular work for me. And to sort of... And the, the showrunner back- doesn't like you. Yeah, yeah. to sort of know <laughs> the background of everything that, that went into it. I kind of, like, was... You know, oh well. I hope he's okay. I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't <laughs> have a bad time and stuff. Because golly, he's just here trying his best. And it's it's funny though because I think um, you know Keffer had been gone for a few episodes and has a slightly major role in the last episode that he's in. Just like the telepath who disappeared for almost the whole season, um, then showed up in that one episode where she finally left. Um, thus signaling that it was going to be her who was in fact at the center of that whole plot. Um, <laughs> So if if there's anyone else, like, for instance, um, Jakar's lackey, who has been AWOL for Mm -hmm. the better part of the season, once she shows up again, if indeed she does show up, um, I would uh, would fear for her life, because (laughs) that there is a sign important that uh, her character will be doomed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I do admit, I have to kind of wonder if, if, if this was A, something JMS, you know, thought of himself... Uh, the idea of, of, of a Kepler style, style role, or B, you know, had embraced it more rather than resented it. I mean, it, you know, it had potential. Um, and it does feel a little bit like, like wasted potential, even though we understand sort of where JMS is coming from. But yeah, I mean, the fact that you've got a character who is a fighter pilot is something that you can actually do something with. You can't, it, it strains credibility to have uh, Sheridan or Ivanova or Garibaldi, you know, leading the fighter wing charges every single time. They're senior officers. Keffer could have been a Riker-like captain uh, character, you know, leading the away team while the uh, while the big chair people make decisions. But all of the action this season has been happening at the big chair level. It's been politics and uh, political tension and interpersonal tension and developments, that sort of thing. Um, There hasn't really been a place for serious Mm -hmm. X-Wing fighter daring do kind of stuff that couldn't be handled by a one-shot guest player. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I pers- personally, I'm not uh, I'm not willing to cut too much slack. I think I think that 
anything can happen once a series, you know, is, is has started rolling. And JMS is very good at altering things. And I mean, if he had come on board and given a really stellar performance and sort of won people over, maybe it would have changed the character. Mm-hmm. But there are, you know, some of the actors on the show do a great job of taking dialogue that's fairly stagey, fairly stilted, and making it sound good and making it work. And I will admit that especially early on, Kevers, some of Kevers' dialogue was very kind of clipped and stagey mm-hmm. and, and not great. But there was... Uh, there was nothing in the performance to make me feel better about it. And then even when he did get some decent dialogue, it was, it still didn't do anything for me. So mm-hmm. I, he's, a, he's a, he's a pretty boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. I have to say that I was, I was amused watching, watching all of these episodes with Steven as the opening credits rolled because we did have <laughs> every time he showed up or the telepath or Natoth, it was like, Nope. Nope, <laughs> nope, or just you know, rolling eyes or shrugging shoulders. So, thank you, Stephen, for that uh, little bit of entertainment, extra yeah, well, entertainment. Well, it's fun. It's kind of like um, opening title sequence bingo in a way, and and I'm enjoying playing it every year <laughs> to see which ones are actually still going to be there by the end of the year, but won't be actually edited out. I I have to ask. I mean, I don't know if you you three remember this on original broadcast, but did they use? different title sequences as it went on. I know I know you said that the first two episodes of this season still had full on Mimbari uh Delenn mm-hmm. in them. Did they did they change the rest of the title sequences, like once the telepath left, was she in there anymore? Do you remember? Uh, they did not change the title sequences not because okay. there was season. there was contractual obligation stuff going on. I figured as such. Okay. Well yeah. wow. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Well, moving moving on from that, uh, either glad or sad tidings, depending on... I, I, I do apologize if there's anybody out there that's a huge Keffer fan and is really upset. I, I am sorry. Like, I'm sure there's something about that character to love, and I'm happy if he brings joy to somebody. He just doesn't to me. We, are, um, we promise that the forum threads at b5audioguide.com are a safe space for you. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I swear. I, I won't go in there. I'll just stay out. <laughs> no, totally kidding. Um, so, so moving on to other things, uh, there are lots of cats out of the bag um, at this point. We've had, you know, both both Kosh and the Shadow sort of becoming revealed as our sort of kind of cliffhangery thing um, at the end of season two here. Uh, but I, I thought specifically the Kosh reveal was interesting because we, you know, he's been this super mysterious character with ver- barely any lines all the way through. And suddenly he's out. And not only is he out, but everybody sees something different. He, he looks like an angel, a being of light, but, uh, you know, he looks like uh, Valaria or Droshala or Jalan, depending on who's looking. Of course, Lando doesn't see anything. How, how did you guys react to let's let's go to you first, Stephen, because I'm curious to see what you thought seeing seeing Kosh suddenly appear and have a body and be all shimmery and stuff. Um, a bit silly at first, I have to say. Uh, I was not expected. I thought there would be, I don't know, a different and less. I don't know, silly moment for him to reveal himself. I was hoping that he would not do it to sort of become a flying angel to rescue, rescue um, a uh, Bruce Boxnellator on on Kirby wires. But uh, but the second viewing, I was a little more prepared for it. I, I did like the fact that he that he looked different to every single other race being out there. Um, so I wonder what Londo did see. Did he just see sort of like um, Captain Sheridan just sort of like hover in in the air and then suddenly sort of hold hands with some invisible being and sort of gently come to back down to the ground. I, I'm not too sure. But um yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure about that, I have to admit. I enjoyed the build up to it. I enjoyed the uh, the way they 
they shot that um, the suicide or the the bomb squad there, sort of leaving a bomb on the on the train, um, so that Captain Sheridan and his huge security team, as head of Babylon Five that he has, <laughs> he rides the train. Um, uh, I like that bit, but yeah, I think I think the. Um, I mean, you know, one doesn't watch Babylon 5 for the visuals, and they did try to do some some groundbreaking stuff with computer stuff, but when, when the, when the I don't know, when it, when it sort of fails, as this kind of did for me, I don't know, it didn't, it, it didn't really ring true. I, at first, I, I didn't really realize, actually, that it was a zero-G environment. I think they had a sign on the train entering mm-hmm. a zero-G environment, but I, mm-hmm. I have seen so little of that area of of the station that when he flew out, I thought he was just sort of like, is he supposed to be falling at regular speed? Cause he's not. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, the fact that they sort of had to explain it as he, you know, was, was falling out of the, the train. I think, I don't know. It didn't ring true. It wasn't the best scene. I'll say that. Well, what did mm. you think of the reveal of Kosh to be this being of light then? Well, Ign- I don't know. ignore the special effects. Just yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose as I wasn't expecting him to be a being of light either. Um, I don't know what he. I don't know what I expected. I suppose when there's a big, huge mystery as to what he's going to be, the fact that you know when you reveal him as something, then you're immediately going to be disappointed in it a little bit. So I don't know where it's going to go from here. I don't. You know, we never saw him disappear either we he didn't we didn't see him climb back into the suit which i think it would have been a really cool effect and we could sort of you know have a look because we never saw him come out of the suit nor did we see him go back into the suit so there's a slight disconnect about that um so i don't know what to think of kosh i think he's still mysterious um that maybe that's just his parlor trick uh, so <laughs> I, I yeah i'm not too sure i i'm i'm still not sold on kosh i do find that he in recent episodes he's sort of become a lot more open um, to to Sheridan and teaching him things and everything like that, but um, but this uh, this this was a this is an unexpected turn, I'll say. Shannon, how about you? What were your reactions, uh, either the first time or just this time rewatching on Kasha's revelation? I'm trying to think back at the time. Uh, I think it was very interesting, very intriguing um, to to have the notion of um, you know this, this being that. Uh, is represented to all of these different races as a positive being, as a good being. And um, I also liked immediately how very soon after, you know, here's Delenn, you know, explaining like, you know, yes, you know, they've been, you know, guiding, they've been visiting all of these other races for, you know, thousands of years. And Sheridan's, you know, immediate reaction is just like, yeah, really, you know, they, you know, trying to set it up so that, you know, we will trust them immediately. He He's immediately zeroes in on the negative side of the manipulation. this situation. Yeah, the, the idea of manipulation that has, of course, never crossed Delenn's mind because, you know, <laughs> she's been, you know, working with the Vorlons for, you know, ages and ages uh, personally. And, you know, she she trusts them. So it was nice to have the, this big reveal and opening up this big possibility and immediately the, the negative side of it is shown. Um, so I like that it was kind of balanced. Whereas I just had the... I, I just had the slack-jawed, awe-and-wonder moment of, uh, holy crap, they're angels. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of uh, that that's kind of amazing, and it immediately opens up all kinds of questions. When you know, Delin talks about them, you know, for thousands of years visiting the races. You know, did they get the idea from myths, or did they create the myths? And how manipulative is that? I find it fascinating and amazing. I think it opens up 
the Babylon 5 universe significantly, just in the same sort of way that uh, bringing in um, Jack the Ripper in the previous episode, you know, uh, maybe gimmicky, maybe a bridge too far, but it makes B5 feel bigger and broader and weirder. And I really like that. Yeah, it certainly rounds out the Vorlons a whole lot more as a, as a race, you know, um, because just last episode, we got the first taste of the fact that they're don't, not necessarily very nice. And then, you know, the very next episode, but they're, the visual connection that people make to them are angels. So, you know, it, it, it throws out a lot more questions and a lot more what's really going on. Um, makes things more interesting. I also like that it's only been a few episodes since, uh, you know, that's why Kosh can't leave his encounter suit. He would be recognized. By whom? By everyone. And you only get a few episodes that go past before you get the explanation of what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for my part, I I was firmly on Team Chip. I was I was completely <laughs> slack-jawed the first time I saw this and was like, oh my god. Um pun intended. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I didn't myself didn't th- think quite so far into the, you know, the cynical side of it until the very last scene where, where Sheridan is saying, oh, you know, or did they did they manipulate us and program us to react the right way when when they show up again? And I love that idea. And and yeah, just kind of like going down those little rabbit holes in my mind, uh, I found fascinating. So I, I was a, a big fan of this episode because I was just just gobsmacked. Well, what did, I mean, Londo saw nothing. Why do we think that Londo saw nothing? I'm guessing oh, one I speculation is if you How, how far can we go parli- without spoiling? Well, how think back can- to Parliament of Dreams. When we learn something about the Centauri, the Centauri religions, it's basically they've got hundreds of gods. They're, you know, all these hundreds of different gods doing hundreds of different things. There's no indication that there's any unification to, to that. So if they just, in among those hundreds of gods, if they just don't have something that is a parallel to an angel, Londo just doesn't have a frame of reference, maybe. I don't know. Oh, I'm just wondering if, if Londo, I mean, does, does every single person who believes in angel or, or whatever the other races believed in, I mean, what, what did the atheists who witnessed the event see? Did, they, did <laughs> right. they see anything, you know? I thought it was kind of odd that it sort of like, yeah. it sort of smacked this sort of religious overtone onto a, mm-hmm. onto a show that I think has gone out of its way in a few episodes to sort of like be a, against religion or at least equalizing of all religions. Yeah. yeah. See, I thought it was the, the other, I thought it was the opposite. I felt the, you know, especially given Sheridan's views on it later, I, I thought that this was an incredibly cynical view of religions because, you know, sorry, folks, angels aren't actually real. They're aliens from another world who have been making you think that there is something, you know, yeah, religion could, worthy about these creatures with wings. That's a possibility. And there's yeah. also the first time around, I think, when Londo you know, said he saw nothing. At the time, my reading was, yeah, well, that's because you've sold your soul to the other side. You know, yep. and I don't know if that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah I think I it's. I think it's more. I, I don't think it's. I, I think it's thematically convenient that uh, Londo doesn't see anything, and it makes his his sort of the dark place that he's in right now uh, seem all that more stark. But I think the other um, the other conclusion that you could draw from the information that you're given in this episode is that for some reason, the Vorlons didn't find the Centauri worth tinkering with yeah that's a possibility and that's supported by the establishment of their religions so who knows 
very interesting stuff. Well, the other the other great revelation that just came at the very tail end was, of course, the shadows being revealed by Kefir, which is uh, apparently a bad thing. Uh, since the scene right before that, we find, you know, we have Delenn saying, well, we're still okay with Kosh revealing himself as long as nobody knows the shadows are out there. And then, oops, the shadows are out there. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Good uh, job, Kefir. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, now that's just that's part and parcel for this episode. I, I had in my notes that this this was JMS basically just he he's got the steering wheel and he's like yanking it all the way to the left and then he's going all the way to the right just to give the this whipsaw effect for the viewers. You know, not just with scenes like that where you know Delenn says you know we're okay as long as you know the the shadows are still in the shadows and boom, guess what? Keffer's footage is out. Um, but other things, you know, with um, the um, the whole um, Narn cruise, the Narn ship there, and uh, the representatives from EarthGov there, and you know, you're thinking, you know, finally EarthGov is going to step in and do something, and then you find out halfway through the episode, no, they're not, or um, they're going to do exactly what you don't want them to do. Yeah, th- at th- every very- point in this episode, Sheridan is like wrong. He is so wrong. Every prediction he makes is wrong. Mm-hmm. Every, every expectation wrong. Even when he's, you know, the um, when Ivanova uh, says uh, Centauri aren't trying are trying to goad them into firing the first shot, and uh, <laughs> Sheridan says he doesn't think so. I don't think he was getting ready to say. I think that they're going to attack right now. I think he was right. expecting to call their bluff, and no, right. they just opened fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's the wrongiest wrong person I who ever wronged. He is quite. Fr- I I was kind of like shocked at like how he was sort of going behind everybody's back to sort of give you know sanctuary and to help out the uh, the, the the wounded Narn ship when he really, as well said, he really should have told someone to say you know that we could have get you know take the ship if we want and we'll take the people into sanctuary. But he didn't do that. He went uh, about it so backwardly. And clandestinely, that, and then uh, you know, sure he acted by the book, Article Forty Seven or whatever it is, to uh, to not open fire on someone who's in open um, conflict with with Earth or something like that. But he he could have avoided this whole thing um, had he just sort of gone by the gone by the rules. Well, and he kind of end- tried to bluster his way out of it. I didn't like his I didn't like his reaction to be honest. Because he said, you know, I'm sorry that I waited so long before I blew you into the Stone Age. That's sort of like... <laughs> his rehearsal apology. Yeah, yeah, his rehearsal apology. I thought that was just the wrong tone since it, the problem started because of his his mistake of judgment. And See, I, I don't think- I don't read it that way at all. I don't think it was a mistake in, in judgment because, I mean, he is in charge of Babylon 5. The Ministry of Peace, that's not his that, That's not his boss. The, no. the, the, you know, there's, there's nobody that he n- normally needs to contact in order to make these decisions. And I believe... And at the end, as he as he says, is that he he doesn't believe that the Centauri would have actually given up that Narn ship, and he doesn't have any reason to believe that because remember when when Captain Sheridan asked uh, on behalf of Earth to send observers to Narn and to other places in order to make sure that things were happening, you know, correctly, uh, flat out refusal immediately. So I think. Uh, Sheridan at least thought that if if anybody were to tell the Centauri about this, they would have shown up immediately and blown it blown it to to hell. They would never have gotten those Narns off that off that ship. I'm also wondering. It just occurred to me just now in the last th- three or f- three episodes or so, Sheridan's suddenly got a huge bigger picture in his head, and I'm wondering if that's affecting his decisions. And, you know, he's not just thinking in terms of you know Earth EarthGov representative 
leader of Babylon 5. Delenn has, you know, D- Delenn and Drawl have told him about, you know, more about this great war. Delenn has not only introduced him to the rangers, but put him in charge with her um, as leading the rangers. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got the ordeal they just went through with Comes the Inquisitor that, you know, you are the right people at the right time to lead this. I just, you know, I'm wondering if that is pulling his judgment farther away from from what it what it might have been. I think you're right about that. Yeah, because I think, you know, everyone seems to be siding with the Narn at this mm-hmm. point, you know, because of that war. Um, and, well, the Centauri are, you know, continuing to stomp all over little worlds that are near them. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, so. uh, yeah. Which is interesting because uh, a couple of people in our uh, discussion threads for uh, Comes the Inquisitor have uh, been calling uh, the three of us out, uh, Shannon and Erica, about our pro-Narn bias. They don't see Jakar as being a redeemed figure at this point, and the the Narn were certainly pretty nasty uh, last season. But I think by this time, the story, as well as most of the characters and most of the alien governments and things like that, are fully prepared to believe that the Centauri are awful, awful people. The government is the, the the government is a danger, and Sheridan is justified in doing whatever is necessary to uh, to defend against them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we also get some more World War II type references. You mm-hmm. know, looking at the Centauri as as Germany. You know, we have the line, "We will at last know peace in our time," um, mm-hmm. which is you know maybe a little bit on the heavy handed side, but it certainly shows yeah. where Sheridan and the other races are coming from in looking at the Centauri as being such a um, a, a nation in, in search of conquest, basically. Yeah, um, and and if 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 I may, if I can just sort of spin off on that for a yeah. second, uh, heavy-handed. I do feel like this is kind of a heavy-handed um, episode, and I don't know how much much of it is direction and writing, but at various times, uh, Sheridan seems blustery. Some of the dialogue seems blustery. Um, it and maybe this is just season finale syndrome, but this episode feels really on the nose. I like everything that happens in it. It just feels a little more obvious and a little more pointed than perhaps it needs to be. Almost because there's a, like a lot of stuff to wrap up or explore mm-hmm. that they had no time for subtlety in a way, you know? That's what I kind of got the impression of. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of unsubtle things, uh, what do we think of the Night Watch and, uh, and Zach's sort of struggle with it and, and the fact that they are, you know, it's very, very sort of big brothery. What, what do you guys feel about that? I think John Vickery can play just as nasty a person without a Mimbari bonehead. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. Naroon. I don't know Mr. if you Wells, remember Naroon Mr. Wells is Steven. the same actor that plays Naroon. The, the Mimbari, the Mimbari general. You remember that, Stephen? I have no memory of this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't think he would. <laughs> you no. just said Naroon, and I was like, that's not going to help anybody. <laughs> uh, okay. I still, can't, I still don't even get the race yeah. of the Minbari right. No. Um, yeah. the, what, was, what was he? First season? Yeah. For, yeah. Showed up first season, caused some problems, and then got plopped into the Grey Council uh, when uh, they took Delenn out. Oh, wow. And, no, and threw everything I off balance. Understand that the, um, yeah. the guy who was on the planet there, um, uh, Draw. 
Drawl, yeah. understand that I didn't even recognize that he was lo- a different looking actor, a different oh, okay. actor at all between his first and second appearances. So, okay. <laughs> well, good for him. I, I, I thought he was Kyle McLaughlin's twin brother. Yeah, um, there is I that. I saw that, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you this about Nightwatch. Lou Welch wouldn't have been drawn into that sort of thing. So. <laughs> no, no, Lou he Welch, he had, he, he had moral fiber, damn it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not There's Connelly. a reason Lou was no longer on Babylon 5. He apparently told some Nightwatch guy to go jump off a cliff, and like Ivanova did. That, that's my guess. And he got reassigned. <laughs> Headcanon accepted. <laughs> um, but, it's, I, it's, uh, again, it's, it's sort of that on-the-nose kind of feeling. Um, it is very on-the-nose. The, the, the things that, I mean, I was constantly jo- jotting down in my notes quotes coming from the Nightwatch perspective from Wells and uh, from the other guy and putting quotes around them, you know, every single time. It's like, you know, disloyal, um, you know, all of these things that, you know, were being said that just, you know, scream out, you know, a government trying to control its population and control what they think and control what they what they see. Yeah. And it all seems so obvious. And at the time, it sort of made me wonder, you know, why would so many people fall for this or get into this or something like that? And here it is, 2016, and the spokeswoman for the front-running presidential candidate of one party goes on television wearing a necklace made out of actual bullets. And I'm thinking that Nightwatch maybe is too subtle compared to what, <laughs> More to, to, to what the, the possibilities yeah. of politics are. I don't know. <laughs> it is kind of heavy-handed. But these sorts of things have happened in human history before. So um, I keep reminding myself as one of the one of the messages of Babylon 5 is that if we're not super, super careful, we're going to make the same mistakes over and over. Very, very well said. Yep. And I think that, you know, especially for younger people watching Babylon 5, even at that time, wouldn't necessarily be all that familiar with with the fact that this kind of thing had happened before. So, and especially watching now, certainly young kids are not getting the same kind of education about that time in the world as people who are living, you know, so much closer to it. So I don't have a problem really myself with it being rather heavy handed because um, sometimes, sometimes it makes more sense to do it that way. My last little little note here before we move on to anything else uh, others want to cover is just uh, Ivanova's gift to Sheridan. Um, I understand the intent behind it, the whole, you know, anything is possible sort of thing. But we've spent these whole two years sort of uh, making the alien races feel more like people and showing that it's one big universe and we're all just living in it together. And she gives him a piece of scrap from a ship that, you know, destroyed many, many, you know, thousands probably of lives of these people. So um, did anybody else have that same sort of gasp reaction to to that gift when she gives him a piece of scrap from the the Black Star? Not a gasp, um, but maybe more of a wince like you know this is Ivanova trying to be insightful and supportive and you know make Sheridan feel better about himself and yeah I'm I'm not completely sure it works either (laughs) you know I think it works I think it's a very military thing Hmm, Um, I think that uh, I, I think that even today with Sheridan having become friends with Dolin and 
getting himself involved with a great war against the darkness that's going to be involving the Minbari and things like that. Even today, Sharon, as a military guy, would not apologize for blowing up the Black Star. And that would be a tangible reminder of a military victory. I think these two soldiers would see it as just that. And I think that any other squeamishness that you and I might feel about that sort of thing uh, would be something that we're sort of overlaying on it because we're not military types. We're a little more sensitive that way, I think. That could be. Stephen, what do you think? Well, I mean, it did kind of, Ivanova gives us this thing and says, hey, you know, you could show your new girlfriend to land this. And think, hey, <laughs> look at Ivanova got this. It's a shrapnel of that ship that, you know, probably lots of your friends are on and died. Anyway, that was nice of her. I just thought, oh, that's not good. I thought perhaps it's a it's a subtle a subtle gift. Perhaps Ivanova is jealous of uh, of Delenn's affection for Sheridan and wanted to sabotage that relationship. I I thought that was a bit of a heavy handed. Actually, that was a bit heavy handed in the way to sort of like get to the point that anything is possible. You know, it was this this long drawn out sequence of a Christmas gift that's shrapnel. I just that was I don't know. It, I, I think that could have been better. I like this episode. I've complained about a couple things, but I actually did like it. I want I want to point that out. Well, what what did you like about it? Give us some of the some of the high points for you. Well, I, I um I, I like the the space battle. I do like Babylon Five does a good job at this, where they just sort of like it, it's it's you know one mistake um sort of makes everything happen and sort of like it just sort of like oh then I have to correct this, but then something else happens because of that, and it just sort of everything sort of snowballs. So when you you know there's no there's no big evil moment or something or some direct decision by someone that will cause this. It's just a, a bunch of misunderstandings. Like the whole war between the Minbar and the, uh, I mean, the uh, Centauri and the and um, the Narn was basically just a, a misunderstanding. And I like how that happened. And that's pretty much how that whole space battle, in a way, happened. It was, you know, Sheridan sort of just wanting to, to protect the, uh, the Narn. Um, at first, and then other things happened and got involved, and it, it it was a believable movement towards that space battle, which I thought was quite. It wasn't gratuitous or anything like that. There was, it was, it was kind of tragic in a way the way it happened. So I, I like that. I like that they sort of kept that kind of thing going, and um, and I like uh, Londo is increasingly distant. I remarked um, when they're sort of waiting for. Sheridan's apology that everyone mm-hmm. else is, you know, doing small talk, and there's Londo, you know, the unpopular, yep. unpopular guy at the party mm-hmm. that no one wants to talk to. Um, so that's intriguing. Um, that shot uh, in the montage at the end where he's uh, screaming and yelling yeah. at the, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he's he is clearly the bad guy now. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of always thought he was in my brief you know, <laughs> flipping of channels through it. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that he was the bad guy because no one ever seemed to be happy with him. And now he is, <laughs> you know, he's gone from sort of Joker to the bad guy. And like I said about, about you know, there's no one truly evil or anything like that. He's the bad guy just because he made some bad decisions and was mm-hmm. has just sort of been caught up in it all. And he's just, he's almost kind of trying to, you know, play the bad guy now, even though that was never the role that he intended to be. Yeah, it is nice that he's not, he hasn't become a mustache twirling villain. We get that nice scene with Garibaldi talking about it, saying, you know, he they used to be sort of friends and, you know, he was a pain in the butt, but he was our pain in the butt. And Garibaldi and, yeah. zeroes in on Londo's fear. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Look He's in like his eyes. He's like the one person who can pick up on the fact that Londo, at this point at least, and you know, possibly for a long time, is afraid of what he's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he yeah. you know, spends part of his time being really angry at him and part of his time feeling feeling sorry for him, which is exactly my reaction to, to mm-hmm. watching it. So, you know, we're we're viewing it in the same way that the char- the other characters around him are, are viewing him. And I, I think that that's a sign of, of good writing, of good character development when it's yeah. coming along that way. He's covering up his insecurity with bluster. He's basically like a middle management guy who's just prom- prom- promoted to upper middle management. And he thinks he has the power to sort of do that. But there's, you know, a whole legion of people above him who are sort of making the real decisions. And I think he kind of realizes that. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to call out that you particularly liked about this one, Stephen? Um, well, uh, Janet Greek used to be my favorite director uh, in season <laughs> one. Mm-hmm. And she was, I mean, it was, it was passable stuff here, which, which is a sign, uh, a good sign, because it means that I think there's some stronger direction going on. In season two, most of it will be Mike Fahar, of course, like that. Um, not not to decry season one, but it did look kind of cheap. And um, it still does kind of look cheap. I, I finally zeroed in on it. Uh, and this is more of a, con- a comment on the whole series, not necessarily just this episode. So I hope you'll uh, forgive me for this. But mm-hmm. um, And I, I really only noticed it when you were watching, Erica, some episodes of, of that show Dark Matter on Netflix where they're on a big giant spaceship and everything, but you never see outside. There's never any sign that they're in space. And and I I, I watched Babylon 5 and I realized that no rooms in this place have windows. No one sees out into space. It's always so closed off. Mm-hmm. And because of their, their decision to sort of have um, the, the CG, the, the rudimentary CG um, uh, animated exteriors and everything there's there's a certain disconnect between the the outside and the inside and it kind of makes me feel a little bit closed off i have to admit and i was hoping it would it would sort of expand a little bit in this season that didn't quite happen yet so i'm 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 hopeful that uh that somebody installs a window that might be too much to ask uh, <laughs> well of but, course because it's a rotating uh station um all of the windows would be in the floor that's true they would be. What the, who designed this station? That's terrible. I mean, no wonder people go crazy and shoot each other in the Zuccolo because they, no one ever sees the outside in this place anymore. Well, I mean, the the humans don't have uh, artificial gravity. They're just, you know, they're just getting by. I suppose mm-hmm. so. Well, and as far as being outside, you know, you do get like the gardens and areas that are sort of outside-like. They're just not space. Yeah, but I mean, I not to compare it to Star Trek, but in, in like... In Star Trek, there's always a, a shot or two. He's comparing it to Star Trek. I yeah. am compared to Star Trek. But there's always like a shot or two, especially in Deep Space Nine, where there's like a big window and you can see space out there. And you can just sort of get that, you know, the, the feeling that you're, you're in space. And so when, yeah. you're, when you're not... And like, Babylon 5, the, like the bridge in that center of one end is like the only place. That's it. And then yeah. when they're under attack, they close it off so they can't well, see yeah. it anyway, mm-hmm. you know. So, so it's... it's um, it, it, when there's good direction, you can get by that, and that's what I really liked about Mike Fahar's episodes is that he really, um, you know, he, he made you forget that there weren't any windows or, or the limitations of the set, and it just sort of made you focus on the actors and and the characters, mm-hmm. and that's when it's when it's best. Um, and so this episode wasn't quite <laughs> up to the standards of last episode, uh, <laughs> but but I did like it as a as a um, as a as a closing 
thing. I, I so much so that I mean, this whole season was so because that Eric and I went to the UK in in, Nove- in November, mm-hmm. and we were going to be off, for, you know, from recording for this for like a month or something like that. And I basically demanded to watch the end of up into the end of season two mm-hmm. before we left because I didn't want to wait six weeks or eight weeks or something to watch the final few episodes to record for the podcast. So, so it was, it was a fun enough season that I wanted to see it like Mm -hmm. now, as opposed to wait uh, a few weeks, a few weeks to do it. Mm -hmm. That speaks pretty highly of it. Um, I have just a couple more little notes uh, here. um, Character kind of little moments. I thought it was a very nice touch uh, that Sheridan, after he cuts Londo off on his communicator in his office, uh, he immediately says, run diagnostic. So he's not only just just saying, oh, you're breaking up, I have to go. Then he runs a diagnostic so that the the records will show that there must have been something (laughs) wrong because he's running a diagnostic. Little things like that just make me very happy when a writer thinks Mm -hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and of course uh, with Zach Allen. Um, and okay, why am I blanking? Jeff Conaway. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know why that just fell out that's, of my head all of a sudden. That's right. Um, I know. I know the actor. You know the character, and I don't know the character, so we got either way. Either yeah. way, but yeah, I, I just could not remember his name for a moment. But um, you know him. Him being so very clearly uncomfortable with what you know, like kind of like Londo. Londo has put his foot in deep, and he knows now he can't get out. And Zach is just beginning to realize that oh, my foot's awfully deep into this. And I don't like where it's going. Um, so I, I really, really liked um, Jeff Conway's performance in this episode. Mm-hmm. We also get a lovely moment between Veer and Lanier at the very uh, beginning of this one. Yes. At the bar. Um, I, I appreciate the, you know, their storylines are kind of mirroring each other a little bit because they're... Be- they're so kept out of things, but you know they they know what's going on. They just don't know what's going on. It's it's kind of adorable. Or they can't do anything about it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it is a lovely little scene, and it's performed well. But it's another example of a sort of on the nose scripting, kind of. Mm. You know, it's it's yeah. like it's like it's like a little set piece. There's nothing naturalistic about the conversation or anything. They 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 take their places on the stage. They have their banter and then they walk away. It's almost like a it's it's almost like a, some fan writing that I've seen. Um, <laughs> it's I, I enjoy it, but I I was surprised watching this episode how uninspired the writing felt. It was in in terms of in terms of just dialogue, basically. I like everything that this episode does. I just wish that it felt a little more subtle i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and that scene that that scene uh does that for me i i get the impression i mean there was uh after they sort of um after veer sort of looks up and they ha- they share the moment there when they actually lock eyes and stuff and then there's an awkward edit uh when they sort of return to their seating positions and i, I i'm led to believe that perhaps a longer scene existed there but I think like Shannon and I were talking before, they, there was no room for subtlety in this, and they basically had to excise it uh, in order mm-hmm. to get the, the plot and the story moving. Um, well, no, I, I do have to mention that, though. I have enjoyed the rise of the flunkies in season two. I've liked both of um, of Lanier and especially Veer, who's been great. Yeah, and that, that the top's been really kicking ass, too, right? She has been awesome. I look forward to many, many scene-stealing moments in, uh, in season three with her. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. 
Uh, uh, any last things to cover before we before we head into spoiler space and uh, kick kick Steven out and send him to the Zocalo? Um, just a couple more comments of the, our guest actors. I mentioned uh, John Vickery playing a human this time and mm-hmm. and doing a very good job of uh, being the the smarmy politician. The Narn uh, captain of the Narn cruiser is a fellow named Robin Sachs. We've seen him before with the Mimbari Bonecrest. So, you know, it's kind of yeah. nice that, you know, the same actors are able to come in and do different parts. And uh, the the negotiator uh, mm-hmm. is uh, Roy Dotris, who has had a career since the 50s, uh, mostly TV, mostly character acting. Um, of course, Murder, She Wrote is probably where they found him. But he's actually still active. Um, he apparently was on Game of Thrones in a couple of seasons a couple of years ago. So That's he's true. still yeah. out there doing stuff. We actually, I watched uh, the, the movie The Cutting Edge, the hockey slash uh, uh, yeah. figure skating movie. <laughs> I, uh, I know that movie. Romantic comedy from the early 90s the other day. And mm. he was in that. And I had forgotten yeah. that we had just watched this episode. I was like, where do I know him from? Because he plays the Russian coach in that uh-huh. movie. Uh, and I looked it up and I must have missed Babylon 5 on uh, on IMDb. And I was just like, oh, I probably just know him from Beauty and the Beast because I loved that show back yeah, in the day. Yeah, that's right. And then we rewatched this today. And I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> it's him. It's it, it's him. So, yeah. yeah. I have Excellent. one question for the group. Mm-hmm. Every year, Babylon 5 got renewed at the last minute by the skin of its teeth. Every year could have been Babylon 5's last. If this had been the last episode of Babylon 5, would it have been a satisfying stopping place? No. God no. <laughs> uh-uh. I I mean as the narration in the the whole season is like you know the the year the great war came upon us. As as the season progressed, I assume they just meant the Narn Centauri conflict, but by the looks of it it means it was just a setting up of the great war that we have yet to see. So there was so much setting up in this that no, it would definitely wouldn't have been been satisfying if it ended here. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, Stephen, do you have any predictions for, for where it's going to, or maybe not predictions, I know you don't like to do that, but um, having not seen it before, where where do you feel like we're headed in the next series? Well, I think that obviously the space crabs are going to be um, a lot more prominent, perhaps slowly as the season goes along, because they, they're they so... Um, Crabby? They're crabby, but they're they're all, they're nigh on invincible. So such grumps. I, yeah, I, I'm I'm intrigued to see what happens with them. Um, I I I honestly don't know. Uh, I the 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 um, Delenn Sheridan relationship. I'm intrigued to see what happens there. I'm intrigued to see how isolated and alone Londo continues to get. I'm uh, I'm curious to see what happens with the with the the fate of the Narn, who are really really down and out, and a, and a persecuted species at this point and. So I'm intri- I'm intrigued to see what happens then, but I have I have no no actual predictions or anything. I do have one question though, if I might, because mm-hmm. uh, it's been two years now, um, and this I don't think, to my memory, this hasn't been addressed yet. But on the the title graphic art for this podcast, it says you know the audio guide to Babylon Five uh, analysis review spoo. <laughs> what pray tell is spoo? Spoo There's has been, been mentioned, hasn't it? Yeah, one, at least once, maybe at twice. At least in the first episode. And it's a, it is a alien delicacy from okay. from one of the one of the planets. Then and, and apparently it's it's best fresh, whatever it is. Um, I'm, I can't remember now. JMS playfully described it 
in in the Usenet because when somebody asked at one point, you know, just just what it was, but I'd, I'd have to go look it up to find the quote. <laughs> but give yes, me it, a second. Oh, <laughs> the magic <laughs> <Yes>. fingers. <laughs> All right, here comes the performance. <laughs> per JMS, Spoo is Spoo is also oops spelled backward. Spoo is or are, the plural of spoo is spoo, small, white, pasty, mealy critters, rather worn-like, and generally regarded as the ugliest animals in the known galaxy by just about every sentient species capable of starflight, with the possible exception of the Pachmara, who would simply recommend a more rigorous program of exercise. They are also generally considered the most delicious food in all of known space, regardless of the individual's biology, almost regardless of species, except for the Pachmara, who like the flavor, but generally won't say so, simply to be contrary. Spoo are raised on ranches, on worlds with a damp, moist, somewhat chilly climate so that their skin can acquire just the right shade of paleness. Spoo travel in herds, if moving a total of six inches in any given direction in the course of a given year can actually be considered moving. They stay in herds ostensibly for mutual protection, but the reality is that if they weren't propped up against one another, most of them would simply fall down. They do not howl, bark, moo, purr, yap, squeak, or speak. Mainly, they sigh. Herds of sighing spoo can reportedly induce unparalleled bouts of depression, which is why most spoo ranchers wear earmuffs even when it's only mildly cold, damp, wet, and dreary outside. If there is any life-or-death struggle for dominance within the Spoo herd, it has not yet been detected by modern science. Spoo ranching is one of the least regarded professions known. Little or no skill is required once you've got a planet with the right climate. You bring in 200 Spoo, plop them down in the middle of your ranch, and go back to the nearby house. Soon you've got more. When it comes time to call out the ones ready for market, the softest, mealiest, palest, most forlorn-looking Spoo of the pack, Little physical effort is required since they're incapable of rapid movement without falling over. See above. They do not resist, fight, or whine. They only sigh more loudly. When spoo harvest time comes, the air is full of the sound of whacking and sighing. Whacking and sighing. Even an experienced spoo rancher can only harvest for brief periods of time due to the increased volume of sighing, which even the sound of whacking cannot altogether erase. Also see above. Some have simply gone mad. Spoo are the only creatures of which the Interstellar Animal Rights Protection League says, simply, kill them. Fresh spoo, served at an optimum temperature of 62 degrees, is served in cubed sections so that they bear as little resemblance as possible to the animal from which they have just been sliced. Spoo is usually served alongside a Chablis, or a white Zinfandel. Aren't you glad you asked? That wraps everything up. That's all I need to know. And, you know, I just, I actually Bring on did, season three. Yeah. I did think of another reference to Spoo uh, in the episode where Londo tries to get the blessing of the techno mage. Uh, yeah. And he starts screwing around with Londo's finances and stuff. Uh, yeah. He, at one point, I think, learns that he has... A has, bunch uh, of shares in a Spoo ranch. Yes, yeah. he's, he's got a, a part ownership in a Spoo ranch. So, so there we go. <laughs> now we know the, the, the whole background of what that means. Okay, I, well, I, I feel once again educated and entertained by this podcast. <laughs> uh, and thank you, Chip, for that lovely dramatic reading. It was wonderful. All right. Does anybody have anything else before we say a fond farewell to Stephen and talk about him behind his back? Eat more spoo. <laughs> All right. As a, as a vegetarian, I, I, apparently I could. Eat spoo, according it to appears. The human rights. Yeah, it appears. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
We're not eating spoo. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I think we're well, done. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that, that brings an end to it. So the last thing to do is to say thank you, Stephen, so much for, for joining joining me specifically on this journey and, and sitting on the couch and watching with me all this time. And um, the other thing to do is to give you your homework for next time, uh, Stephen and everyone who is, is watching. We are now jumping into season three, and the first episode in season three is Matters of Honor. So watch that for next time. And until then, please come and see us on the website at b5audioguide.com. We've got our spoiler-free and spoiler-filled uh, threads for you to talk about the entire season um, and, and everything that came before and after, or just the entire season, if you're spoiler-free. And you can also chat with us on Twitter and Tumblr at B5AudioGuide. So until then, thank you once again, Stephen. But now it's time for you to head to the Zocalo and for us to head through this jump gate. thought he would never leave (laughs) (laughs) totally kidding totally kidding uh uh, it was it was nice to to hear all of his uh his thoughts on on everything that has been happening so far i mean i get that every week but i think it's nice Mm -hmm. to share that with with our listeners from from time to time uh but now we get to talk about what is to come and uh i think it's it's kind of interesting that in this episode we had kasha's appearance heralded as a good sign for the coming year this mm-hmm. place has been blessed well, uh, has it what do you guys think what are we I for i think that as sheridan said that's the reaction the vorlons want that, <laughs> that they have been working very hard for thousands of years to set themselves up as the good guys and you know they're you know maybe Maybe going about it in a neater way, but um, they're yeah, they're not necessarily any better than the in the shadows. So. No. Well, I mean, this is one of those episodes where I feel like there aren't a whole lot of specific things that I noticed to point forward. I feel like this episode very much is is a, it's a great gateway into all of the stuff that's going to be happening the next season. This is you know it's it's the another one of the pebbles kind of rolling down the hill and the avalanche is is really getting rolling but you know i every little part of this story kind of is like oh yeah further on down the line we'll have zach quitting um Mm -hmm. and then can't wait for that yeah exactly (laughs) and then you know any little bit you can there are you know six or a dozen different different pieces of of event and import that are going to happen but it's not like it's not like a lot of the other episodes where it's very clearly you can draw a line. It's like here you're drawing all the lines. So was there anything that stood out to you guys uh, as, you know, you watched it here and were thinking forward to a particular event like Zach, for example? Yeah, the, the, the whole Night Watch thing, the, the whole Night Watch thing had me thinking of, um, you know, just, you know, how much more insidious it's going to get and how much more it's going to take before, you know, number one, Garibaldi blows a stack over the fact that, you know, his security people are no longer his. And for Zach to realize that, you know, these people are, you know, not his friends, you know, they may be handing over lots of ready cash, but it's not worth it uh, for him to, you know, finally trick the Night Watch into hiding, uh, steering them all into that cargo holds for him to dive out and throw that armband off. Um, So that whole you know, and plus it guides, you know, even further towards the direction that Earth is going in, that they're signing this non-aggression treaty with the with the Centauri, that they're not even thinking about supporting the Narn. Um, they just want to keep themselves out of it while Clark continues to build his base. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, and at this point, we don't know how deep the shadow influence is. We know it's it's there. 
and that uh, the shadows have been infiltrating Psychor especially. But yeah, that um, that that was a heavy on my mind. All all of the EarthGov stuff. Mm-hmm. Chip, you were going to say something. I was going. I was going to point out that the legacy of Warren Keffer lives on for one more episode because the whole next episode is actually about the hullabaloo over the discovery of the, of the shadows, um, mm-hmm. and that's. And I I do like that they don't waste any time uh, getting into that. Um, mm-hmm. It it needs to be meaningful um, and concerning that the the revelation of the shadows has an impact. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah, the there's going to be a whole lot of running around and jumping uh, next time. Um, it is significant. And, yeah. The other thing that I want to think about is that the character of the show changes so fundamentally next time. This is the last episode without a white star. Mm-hmm. Ah, right. And with the addition of the white star, you know, the... The show has been becoming less claustrophobic over yeah, the last that, year. That did occur to me as Stephen was was talking that mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 stage is getting bigger. It's moving off the station somewhat into the, the White Star, into other ships, onto other planets. So yeah, the, things will be less claustrophobic than they have been. Yeah, it's almost the last episode of Old Babylon Five because mm-hmm. next time we're going to, next time we're going to have Marcus. Next time Yay! we're going to have. Next time we're going to have the White Star, and the Shadow War is actually going to, you know, next time we're going to have the first direct confrontation with a Shadow Vessel. You know, I keep saying, like a broken record, you know, this episode feels like it's it's something new. This episode feels like it's Babylon 5 now. Um, next time, this feels like the last episode of old B5, in a way. Yeah, well, we're, yeah, it's about to be a new chapter, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, something else that uh, that uh, rang for me um, as, you know, Sheridan and, and Ivanova are talking and, he, you know, he talks about the first time he put on his Earth Force uniform and how proud it made him and how yep. now he just he, he can oh, barely yes. look at it. You know, a few episodes down the line, you get a new uniform. <laughs> so yeah. you, you get just to put cloth. that on. I love yeah. that line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that rang for me, too. That's right. Chip, was there anything else that you noticed uh, or that, that this made you think of? The Earth Centauri Alliance is a big it, – it, it's a big deal here. Um, the decision that they're going to sign a non-aggression treaty with the Centauri, uh, that they feel it's necessary to do so, uh, that it never occurred to Sheridan and Ivanova that – that would be necessary. And in the very next episode, we're going to have a little bitty staff meeting in Earth Dome that Morton happens to be at. Yeah. You know, so this is a this is a nice little setup for the fact that uh the Shadow War in a sense is all just one war. You know, it's it it's happening on different fronts, but um Earth Earth Dome is just as much of a problem as the Centauri are. And for them to be sort of on the same side of things in this episode is helpful to mm-hmm. the next season. Yeah. Um, something that, um, one of the things that I was going to mention, um, where Keffer and the other pilot are talking about um, the encountering the shadows, and Keffer points out um, hearing a scream in your mind as mm-hmm. the ship goes by. That was like, okay, yeah, telepathy, their weakness. Yeah, and that made me, like, you know... 
it's not even exactly foreshadowing, but the, the fact that the details hang together through most of the arc or most of this conflict, um, you know, really helps. Definitely. Well, how did you guys feel about Stephen's uh, sort of reactions to the previous seasons and predictions for the next one? <laughs> is it, do you find it as adorable as I do? Oh, Natoth, Natoth, Natoth. <laughs> <laughs> how long yeah. do we have to wait before Julie Caitlin Brown comes back? Fifth season. Oh, my God. Yeah, basically, really that long? Ba- basically, Natoth gets lost in the Narn, in, in the Narn homeworld shuffle and you know, manages to survive off screen for two, for two seasons before we get Julie mm-hmm. Caitlin Brown back. I, I, I love that it, we're, we're like halfway. We don't find out un- until the episode where uh, Rifa gets his and mm-hmm. the rock cried out no hiding mm-hmm. place. We don't find out until then. And that's towards the end of season three. That Natoth was on Narn when the bombardment happened, and Jakar assumed that she was dead. That's how little JMS thought of Natoth at that point. Yeah. (sighs) Well, I'm thinking of her that little myself, just (laughs) with this this particular characterization that we got in, I don't know. I'm still baffled by how Mary Kay Adams ended up in the opening credits, because, wow, what a great agent she must have had. I think that there was an expectation that she would do better than she did. And when JMS saw that, what was happening, character, unless we have to. Yeah. Which is exactly the opposite of what I said could have happened with Keffer if he would have come Mm -hmm. on really strong and and been great. Yeah. Yeah. I. Something I like, you know, Stephen was talking about how the the differences between um, Londo's character and Jakar's character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're getting a couple of hints here of just how important Jakar is going to be um, as an ally for Sheridan. It's like, you know, he's, you know, he, he, he goes to Sheridan uh, or, or Sheridan goes to him about the, the, the cruise, the warship. Um, Jakar appreciates the fact that Sheridan is trying to help him in every way he can. And then he make in turn offers his help, you know, hoping that his support, that he could do something, you know, in the face of Sharon having to apologize to the Centauri that, you know, Jakar's, Jakar's allegiance is declared, essentially, I think, at, by by the end of this episode, that he, you know, whatever happens, he is going to do his best to support Sheridan because he knows that Sheridan, if not EarthGov, Sheridan's on his side. All right. Well, anything else before we bid everyone farewell? Uh, I'm glad that we're not going into reruns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I had forgotten what how much we were getting in the next episode because you know me i based on titles i never mm-hmm. remember and especially now since we're getting to the really arc heavy uh, portion of the show i have a lot of trouble delineating what happened in one episode versus another i just sort of think of it in terms of you know the, the vast storyline kind of like in a book uh, when i'm reading a novel if you asked me you know when do so and so and so and so finally meet and have that big battle i can't tell you what chapter it is mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's it's the same thing here with babylon 5 it's hard for me to know what happened when so the reminders that you gave me about, you know, getting the White Star and Marcus and all that stuff that, that's coming up right away make me really, really excited to watch the next episode, especially with Steven, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm interested to see, I'm always interested to see his response, but given his thoughts on how you don't see space and how the show feels kind of claustrophobic, I'm, I, I hope that it hits him the right way when mm-hmm. he sees the White Star. Yeah, yeah two other things that... Um just um, looking through my notes that are leaping out at me. Uh, the first one I should have said before the spoiler space, but um, this episode was also nominated for a Hugo Award uh, the same year as The Coming of Shadows. 
and uh, JMS was given the choice and opted to pull this one from nomination rather than try to split the votes and therefore helping the coming of shadows to to take the Hugo that year. Did they do voting differently back back there back then? Because these days there's no like you don't split the vote. I'm confused. Well, I, th- I think if, you know, more than one episode of a property is nominated in the in the long, short form dramatic, I think the producers are given the option of saying, you know, well, let let this be the one on the ballot rather than multiple ones. I don't know. At, at the time, this was that, that that option was given to JMS. And that's hmm. what he took. The other thing that hit me with Ivanova's monologue over her lighting the menorah candles and then, you know, as things continued to get worse. That just at the time seemed to segue perfectly into her um, giving the opening credits uh, in season three. So -hmm. I thought that was a neat touch to have, you know, her sort of, you know, sum up this season in preparation for her um, being the voice of the next uh, of setting the scene for the next season. Definitely. All right. Well, I think that's a perfect thing to leave on. Uh, Just looking forward to Ivanova telling us about uh, telling us about the next year in Babylon 5. So until then, remember (laughs) to are you laughing? I am laughing because it's just so Ivanova that uh, we've had these nice verbose uh, introductions in the last couple of in in these two seasons. And five was set up to bring up the piece. It it failed. It (laughs) failed. You know, that's 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 so Ivanova. It failed. And yeah. she's the first one to not say the name of the place is. It's just, right. you know, the place, Babylon 5. Yep, that is, you're right. Perfectly, perfectly Ivanova. That's so Ivanova. I would watch that show. <laughs> yeah. Totally. All right. Well, for next time, everybody watch Matters of Honor. And we get to talk about all the ex- new excitement in season three. Uh, come to the website. Come to Twitter and Tumblr. Um, definitely check out the spoiler-filled threads at b5audioguide.com. There's some great conversation going on there. And I want to hear what everybody thinks about series two and how it leads into series three. So until that next time, uh, this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>